morning. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but uh, in our culture, uh, we're kind of becoming ever less gracious and forgiving, if, if, I'm, if I'm seeing things correctly, right? If, can I get an amen if, if you feel like you're with me? You feel like maybe people are less forgiving and gracious as they were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, depending on how old you are and how long you've been around. If, if you're noticing that, it's not by accident. It's a fact of life. Uh, there's so much more tension than there used to be. Now, tension looks differently. Of course, we're not in the midst of like a world war like we were right in the, in the 40s and the 30s and 40s. But on an everyday level, we just see a whole lot less patience, a whole lot more anger, and a whole lot more vindictiveness and seeking of vengeance than we used to. We see this in words or terms that we didn't even really understand 10, 20 years ago, like things like cancel culture. Right? If you would have talked to, to me about that when I was in middle school, I wouldn't have known what that word even means. But today, right, how many of you don't have any idea what cancel culture means? Raise your hand. Oh, there's a couple. Okay, well, good. Cancel culture is what we refer to today as this, this world we live in where when someone has done something wrong, it's not just enough to call them out and to seek reconciliation or to figure out a way to have them kind of repay the debt or be brought to justice, but we cancel them. So you'll see like a comedian will have said something that is racially charged 20 years ago and a tweet comes up of some kind, right? And that person is now not able to work anymore. Or if you have, you know, maybe in the workplace, there's some things or moral things that you don't want to be on par with. And so you, you fear for your job because you know that if you speak up, you might be fired, canceled, right? It's not just enough to say, I disagree with your viewpoint or I don't like what you're saying. It's if, if I disagree with you in today's culture, I, I, need, to, I need you to, to, to be demoted in life somehow. And so we put people down, and they can't, they can't find reconciliation. They can't find work. They can't find relationships anymore. We see it a lot in the celebrity culture, right? Anybody know? Where, where's Paula Dean now? Right? now? I'm not saying what she did was not wrong, right? But, like, where is she? Right? These people are being canceled for no reason. We have a lack of forgiveness. And it's not entirely unjustified. Right? That's the hard part about looking at the culture that we're in. Is it's, not this, it's not this thing that we go, that's terrible. Everybody should just be forgiven all the time. No, because people do really bad, wrong things. Right? At the very kind of heart of this cancel culture that we live in is a need for justice. And that need is not a bad thing. We should seek justice. We should want things to be righted that have been wronged. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing terrible about wanting there to be justice in the world. But what we see today goes so far beyond this. Right? Some of us probably struggle with forgiveness in a world that is cancel culture. Right? Some of you maybe have grudges that you've been holding on to for years about people. Some of you may not even remember what the grudge is about. Maybe you do. Maybe you've been significantly wronged in life and you're just not able to forgive that person or let go. For most of us, a lack of this forgiveness comes out of a deep need for justice to be done. Right? If someone wrongs me and I forgive them right away, where is the justice that needs to be served? They're going to get off scot-free. Right? If there's anyone that we know who could use some justice in life, it's our brother Joseph, right? 
Last week, we started to talk about Joseph towards the end, the latter chapters of Genesis, and we saw how he was the favorite son. I made a mistake, by the way. He's not the youngest son. He's the second youngest. There is that guy, Benjamin, right, that we need to talk about. So, so there's that. So I forgive me. Uh, I was one brother off. I figure I got 11 out of 12. Yeah. Right. I feel like the parents probably forgot they had 12 at some point, too. So maybe it's okay for me, too. <laughs> but, you know, you have a dozen kids. I have two, and I... Wonder where one is half the time. So there's, you know, you have Joseph, he's the favorite son, and because of that, the brothers are jealous, and they they sold him into slavery because he was bragging about how superior he was based on the dreams that God was giving him, and all that stuff happened. And then we, we find him at the end of last week in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Potiphar's wife accuses him of making advances when she was the one making advances, and he's imprisoned. And we talked about the long struggle. And so for a total, he's in prison for just over a decade. And that's where we find him today. His pain was immense. God's ways and methods are not always known to us, and so sometimes pain can be senseless. In the case of Joseph, 10 years in prison, plus the other suffering of being sold and all the things that he went through are enough to make any of us go, where are you, God? Right? And we find him falsely imprisoned at the end of where we left him off last week. Today we're going to look at the second part of Joseph's life. What happens after he's in prison? How, does thing, how do things unfold? How do things come full circle? And yes, sneak peek, we'll have a reuniting with the brothers, and it's beautiful. Right? But it takes many, many years. So here's what happens. Before we look at the text for today, which is Genesis 50, 15 through 21, we just need to set the stage because it's the very end of the book after the brothers and them have already met. Right? So here's what happens next. Joseph's in prison. And after about seven or eight years of just sitting in prison with no end in sight, these two people come join him in prison. And it's Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. They offended Pharaoh somehow. We're not told exactly what they did. But for whatever reason, Pharaoh sees fit to throw them in prison. And so they're in there with Joseph. And while they're there, they have some dreams that don't make sense to them. And the Lord gives Joseph the ability, the wisdom, to interpret those dreams. And so Joseph interprets those dreams for, for, the, for, the, for the two people, for the cupbearer and the baker. And the cupbearer is going to have a pretty decent fate. And he says the baker's fate's going to be a little worse. And you know, he says, listen, when you get out of here, if this stuff comes to pass, as, as this is going to happen, um, remember me when you get out. Maybe put in a good word for me with, with the big guy. Right? Tell Pharaoh that you know, there's, there's somebody who could be helpful. And so what happens is they get out. Things come to pass exactly like Joseph said. But the cupbearer who survives entirely forgets to think about Joseph and moves on with his life. Two years go by. Pharaoh starts to have some intense dreams about cows that are fat and cows that are skinny and a whole bunch of stuff that we don't have the time to get into. But he has these dreams that keep haunting him that he can't interpret. And he's asking everybody and anyone he knows for help. And when the cupbearer hears about it, he goes, wait a minute. Two years ago, when you threw me in prison, thanks by the way, um, I met a guy, I met this Hebrew guy, um, and he, he interpreted a dream of mine, and it came to pass exactly like, like he said. Um, he told me what my dream meant, and everything happened exactly like he said it would. Um, I, I wonder if he's still in, in prison. And Pharaoh goes, well, get him out. Bring him to me so that he might interpret my dream. And so after 10 total some years, Joseph is brought out of prison, 
And he's brought, he's cleaned up, he's shaven, he's brought in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him to interpret the dreams. And Joseph, through the Lord's help, is able to. And the dreams essentially amounts to this. There will be seven years in the land of Egypt of plenty. Crops will grow, water will flow, everything will flourish and be great. And after those seven years, there's going to be seven more years of intense famine. There will be no yield, no food, no nothing. And the Lord, by the way, Pharaoh, gave you two dreams that really mean the same thing. And that's really God's way of saying, listen, this is like a stamp of this is really going to happen. Right? The second dream is for emphasis, not for something new. So Pharaoh goes, okay, um, my cupbearer had some pretty good experiences with you, uh, and decides to put all of his trust in Joseph. And so Joseph is elevated. He gives him his signet ring, and he's elevated to second in command in all of the land of Egypt. He says, look, you interpreted the dream. You seem to know what's going to happen. I'm going to put you in charge of all of this. The only, the only way that you will not be in charge, the only thing you won't be over is me. But you will have charge over all things. What you want to have happen in Egypt will happen in Egypt. Right? If someone looks at you funny and you want them gone, just go like this and they'll be gone. I'll take care of them. They'll never see him again. Right? Everything that Joseph wants to have come to pass will come to pass. Pharaoh gives him authority over the entirety of Egypt. And so for seven years, he hatches a plan and they take each year a fifth of the, of the yield and they store it up instead of using it. They go a little bit lean for seven years and they store up all these food reserves in, in various storehouses all over Egypt. And when the seven years pass, the famine, just as the Lord said would, it sets in. And all across Egypt and the surrounding lands, from what we can tell all over the world, there's famine. There's nothing. And so the floodgates are opened. And Joseph says, open the storehouses. We have all the food we need, and we'll provide it to you. He gives them anything they want when they come. He sells food to them. And then not only that, but he was so wise in how he prepared that he's able to actually go to the people outside of Egypt that are coming asking for help. And he's able to sell reserve food to those people as well. Because Joseph, in his wisdom, acted the way the Lord called him to and did what he was supposed to do. It saves the Egypt and the people of it and all of the surrounding people as well. Right? And so inevitably, this is where the brothers come back into play. Because when the famine hits, the brothers are back off in their home country and they start to realize we're going to starve and they're hearing word about this Egypt storehouse of food. I said, everybody seems to be going to Egypt to get food because they somehow have prepped and are ready for this. We don't know how, but they're ready. And so Jacob, the father, says, sends all of his brothers to go down. He keeps Benjamin back. And he says, go and buy food and bring it back. And they get to Egypt, and they get up to the table, and it's their turn. And guess who's at the table? Joseph. Now, put on your sibling hat for those of you who have siblings. <laughs> and take off your godly hat for a second, right? Because let's be real. Every one of you has an inkling of vengeance in that moment. It is, it is just the, the cherry of vindictiveness. The brothers who sold you into slavery, who made the last 20-some years of your life a living hell, literally a living hell, are coming to your table asking for food, 
And by the way, they don't recognize you. You, you recognize them, but they don't recognize you. And I don't know about you, I can think of like 30 different things that I would want to do in that moment, none of which would be holy in any way whatsoever. Right? At the very least, I would mess with them significantly and make them sweat a little bit, right? At the very least. I would probably have them become servants in my household. Right? They would be handing me grapes for the rest of their lives as I eat plentifully, and I would make sure that they don't starve, but I would keep them just alive enough, you know, because that's a vindictive nature of, of mankind. We would, we would want to do that. We would want to address it that way, right? Now, those of you who are siblings need to put yourself in that mindset before we look and see what Joseph did next, right? What's your reaction when these guys show up? What is it that you're going to do? Right? Joseph spends a little time just testing their honesty. He asks them about their family and, and is there any other brothers and those kinds of things to kind of see where they're going to be. And he finds out that they're, they're pretty forthcoming at, at, the, at the time, Right? And then he eventually reveals himself to them. And I would imagine that they are mortified. What's Joseph going to do? He holds all the cards. He has all the power. He could literally just make us carry Pharaoh around for the rest of our lives until we die. Right? He could do anything to us that he wanted to. They're terrified. But here's what Joseph does. He claims that he'll take care of them and provide for them and their father. And he offers them forgiveness. Just like that. He doesn't attach crazy conditions. He doesn't expect them to do some kind of penance for their actions. He doesn't even ask them to apologize. He just offers them forgiveness. And then beyond that, he says, look, I'm, I'm glad you're here because this means that you'll be taken care of. Because I'm the second highest in Egypt and your family. Where's dad? Go and get him and my little brother, Benjamin. Get him. Bring them here so that we can care for them as well. You're going to be better off here than if I just send you back. Come be in the land of Egypt where I'm in charge and you're going to, you're going to have everything you need to get through the next seven years of life and hardship together. I will make sure that you are provided for. Right? And the brothers are struggling to accept this reality. Right? But they go, get, they go get their father and they bring him back and it actually happens and he's caring for them. But probably have, there's probably some fear that comes as a result of that still. They're always kind of worried about, what's Joseph going to do? Like if we make him angry that day, is he going to remember that he gets to be vindictive? Right? What's going to happen next? And that's where our text for today picks up. So I'm going to ask us to stand and just briefly read through Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, Joseph, wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. The scene is absolutely crazy, right? Joseph's brothers came to Egypt for food. They brought their dad. Now the dad is dead. And their thinking is that that was probably the only reason he showed them kindness, right? Because he wanted to take care of his father. The father's dead. Now the vengeance is going to come. And so they make up a lie. They say, let's tell Joseph that our father's dying wish was that he would take care of us after Jacob dies. Let's just make that up, and he'll never disrespect the final wishes of dad. And so let's just tell him that dad wants Joseph to take care of all of us and not to harm us in any way. And so they go and they say that, and it just says Joseph wept. He just, he just didn't even care. I don't know if he knew if they were lying or, or what the issue was, but he stops them in their, in their tracks, and he just says, look, I'm, 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 I'm going to care for you. I, I, I've forgiven you. I don't know what you think that meant, but when I said I forgive you, that that was it. Like there's no secret pocketed vengeance somewhere deep down that's going to come gurgling up after you've been with me for so long or after dad goes or even if if Benjamin goes. It doesn't matter. I am going to take care of you. I promised I would and I said I forgave you and I forgive you. That's, that behavior in today's culture would be insane. We live in a world where that kind of radical forgiveness in the face of decades of abuse is something that we, we sometimes have a hard time stomaching, even as Christians. Right? There's certain levels of wrong that are done against us that we as Christians can, can really not even find in our hearts to forgive in this earth. Right? There's monstrosities that occur in the world that we say, yeah, we, we, can't, look, we can't forgive that. But Joseph, after 20 years of suffering and pain and senseless struggle, just forgives. That's it. And at the very least, I think for us, we would have had to try to find some way to make sure that the people around knew what his brothers had done, right? That's how I operate. In my head. I could probably forgive them, but man, I'd be telling my friends in Egypt what my brothers are really like. Right? Well, where'd they come from? Well, they sold me into slavery, you know, but I forgave them. It would make me look really great, probably. Right? There's things that we as God's people would probably do that we're not supposed to do. So here's, here's the challenge with a passage like this. How do we approach this type of radical forgiveness as Christians in our own lives? Right? Are we to hail Joseph as this hero of faith that's more righteous than us, right? Well, Joseph must be better at forgiveness than me because I could never. And I guess I just, you know, I got to work towards that maybe someday. And then we just move on with our lives. Is that what we do? Should we say that everyone has to forgive in the world the way that Joseph did? Well, in a sense, yes. And in another sense, no. The best way we look at a passage like this is through principles, As we see what Joseph is doing and saying and how the Lord is moving and what the brothers are doing, as we look at this whole story kind of from 30,000 feet up, what are some principles that we can gather that will help us figure out how to approach a text like this biblically as we go out into the world? And so I have six of them for you. Principle number one, God is sovereign. 
We've, we've said this many times before, right? The Joseph narrative that closes Genesis is primarily not about forgiveness, but about the sovereignty of God. Right? It's about him being in charge, right? Sovereign means that God's power and charge are over the world at all times. And whatever God wants to see come to pass is what's going to come to pass. We might plot our own little steps and we might scheme to have things go this way or that way, but the reality is that whatever God wants to see happen will happen by his mighty power and by his hand. He's steadfast, in charge, and in control. He's never phoning it in. He's never trying to figure out, oh my gosh, what do I do next? How do I react to this world that I've made? He's always proactive, never reactive. God is in charge and he guides everything. From any singular five to ten year span, it can seem to us like things are senseless and pointless and have no direction. It certainly did for Joseph. But the reality was this. From the moment he gave Joseph those dreams of grandeur. So the moment his brothers and him are reunited in Egypt and there's forgiveness and reconciliation and care and they survive and thrive, all of that was planned out from the very beginning. Right? In, in the Joseph account, what we see is God's divine plan for sustaining Egypt and all the surrounding lands through famine. He used a guy named Joseph and his crazy family to save millions of people. And at no point in the snapshots of all of those years, at any point, if I plopped you there, at no point would you be able to say, oh yeah, I see that. No, you'd be raising your hands saying, God, where are you? But the reality is, if we look at Joseph, it's an illustration that no matter how much we think God's not at work, he actually is. God is sovereign. And the big lesson here is no matter what your life looks like, no matter how pointless your suffering seems to be or how hard your struggle is or how much there's no end in sight, God is always on the move. He's doing something. I have a pastor friend who wakes up in the morning and asks, what kind of mischief is God up to today? He's doing something. What's he going to do? I can't wait to see it. Something today is going to happen that the Lord is orchestrating and moving around and putting pieces in place for the next thing. And man, I just want to be a part of it and kind of get behind what God's doing and get on that bus, as Jim Collins would say. God is sovereign. Number two, Joseph forgives fully and finally. Joseph's forgiveness doesn't come with any guilt or strings attached, right? He demonstrates a love for his brothers and his father, and he restores them without any punishment whatsoever. He doesn't humiliate them. He doesn't degrade their position. He doesn't mess with their dignity or their character. He doesn't make them work for it. His forgiveness is unconditional and final. And finally, Joseph cares for them as the restored family that they are. There's not a, I forgive you, but, you know, I have my eye on you. No. It's done. That's why when they come to him in our passage for today, he's, he weeps because he goes, don't you get it? Like, we're a reconciled family. Let's live like it. Like, I'm not, I'm not after you. Can you maybe act like I'm no longer after you? Could we, could we be the family that God has made us to be because I've offered you the forgiveness that, that, I, that I've offered you and that's it, we're done. Can we just care for one another and live life as God calls us to? 
right? His forgiveness is completely final. And so when we forgive, we should forgive in the same way. Our forgiveness should come with, with, without strings attached. Like, I can forgive you, but I'm going to need you to make it up for me. No. Forgiveness comes without condition. Number three, Joseph clearly names their sin. This is a really important one. And actually, if you come to our book discussion after this, this was one of the, the big points that, that Tim Keller makes about forgiveness, is it's really important when we, when we offer forgiveness to people that we actually name the sin or the wrong that they've done against us. Right? What does he say? You meant this for evil. You sold me into slavery. And you were evil for having done it. Joseph's forgiveness is not a, no, it's no big deal. It's okay. There's zero excuse for the behavior of the brothers. There's no kind of rationalizing it. There's no, this is okay. It's, it's, it's simply this. I forgive you, but here's what you have done. Right? So when we forgive people, it's important that we clearly state the evil that has been done to us. Listen, you did this to me, and it was immensely hurtful, and it caused me a lot of pain. I'm going to choose to forgive you and let it go. We name the sin. When people wrong us, we don't just let it fly by. We have to call out wrong when we see it. We have to call out people's mess. We have to call out the way that we've been hurt by them before we can offer forgiveness, but then we offer it. Joseph does that. He says, you meant it for evil. Right? Number three, Joseph's forgiveness is born out of the sovereignty of God, right? This is really important for us to understand if we're going to live lives of forgiveness. Joseph doesn't forgive his brothers because he's a better person than you or I. He's not holier than you or I. He's not more righteous than you or I. He's not better at forgiveness than you and I. Here's why Joseph can forgive, right? You might have someone that you can't forgive and you're thinking, well, I'm not Joseph, you're right, but, but you aren't. But here's, here's who Joseph is. Joseph is a guy who understands God's plan. What does he say? You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Because Joseph is in tune with God's moving in action and he can see what the Lord is doing at the very end of it all, he's able to offer forgiveness because he goes, look, you're evil. I'm not excusing it. You did this evil thing. And you shouldn't have done it. And the fact that God used it for good doesn't mean that it's okay that you did it, right? Sometimes people will do wrong things to us, and then it'll work out for us in the end, and they'll go, well, you know, thanks to me, you know. You're still terrible for having done the thing, right? The fact that my life turned out okay is not a testament to how good you are. It's a testament to how rotten you are and how good God is. You meant it clearly for evil, but God used it for good. And I can see the big picture. Right? The sovereignty is what enables Joseph. It's born out of that sovereignty that he's able to start to even think about things like forgiveness. He can forgive in part because he sees the bigger picture of God and how God used his struggle to bring about the saving of millions. Right? So when we as God's people are aligned with God's mission and vision, and when we start to look for the ways that the Lord is at work in our lives, and we start to see how struggles in the past have worked out for God's glory and his kingdom, what we can start to do is say, look, I trust you, Lord. I can forgive even when I don't want to because I trust you. Right? Number five, Joseph's forgiveness is powered, enabled by trusting God as the righteous judge. 
This is really big. The key verse here is verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Question mark. When the brothers come to him, he's saying, look, don't be afraid. He goes, I am not God. And, and God is the one who judges. And by the way, God is the one who will judge perfectly. And so because we have a God who is the perfect judge, that actually is what powers me, what enables me to offer forgiveness to you or anyone. Because in God's perfect righteousness, my need for vengeance and justice, my need for justice is satisfied. Right? I don't have to say, before I can forgive you, I need there to be restitution. Because I serve the creator who is in the business of perfect restitution. When someone wrongs me, I can offer forgiveness even if I don't know that they'll get what's coming to them. Because I know that God is the perfect judge. I can let go and I can let God do his job. Because every single person, you and I and those who have wronged you and I, in the end are going to be judged by the same God to the same standards. And the only standard that's going to matter at the end is are we in Christ or are we not? Right? The person that wronged you is going to get what's coming to them. One of two ways. They're going to get what's coming to them by God standing in front of them at their end and saying all these things I have against you, but you are in Christ, come and be in my kingdom. Just like you, by the way, have wronged others and get to be in the kingdom. Or he's going to say, you depart from me, I never knew you. One way or another, everyone who's ever wronged you is going to face judgment. You don't have to put the burden on yourself to be the one who has to do the judging. Give it to God. Trust me, he's better at it than you are. So much better. Right? If we let it go, it doesn't let them off the hook scot-free. It merely puts them in the hand of the one true and righteous judge. And number six, forgiveness is given. Forgiveness given is born from forgiveness received. This is a little bit outside of the context of just this passage because we're on the, the other side of the cross than where we live today. But it's important to understand this. Our forgiveness of people is born out of the love and the forgiveness that Christ has for us. Right? When we approach those who've wronged us, one of the things that happens is we, we understand how much we have been forgiven of. We understand that every day when we wake up, we deserve death, but somehow God doesn't give it to us. Instead, he raises us up and he washes us clean. He picks us up in the, the newness of our creation. He says, go, go and be about my business. And so for us, forgiveness, hard as it is, it's really just necessary. Right? Because if we're a forgiven people, what, what, what does it mean for us to then not impart that to the world around us in equal measure? We escape the punishment of our actions because Jesus took it and forgave us. Right? Jesus didn't sweep our sin under the rug. Jesus forgave us, and then he took the consequences that should have gone to us. And he paid for them on the cross. That's why he had to die on there. So that all of the ways in which you have wronged, not just your fellow man, but God himself, are bought and paid for. And if your wrongs are bought and paid for, how insane is it for us to live as if the person across from you's wrongs are not bought and paid for as well? Right? And so forgiveness 
given to others has to come from and be born out of the forgiveness that has been received by us as God's people. Genesis wraps up this beautiful account of God's sovereignty, right? Joseph is, is a faithful forgiver, and it's part of God's sovereign plan because Joseph forgives, his family survives and is restored, and because of that, the Hebrew numbers start to grow in the land of Egypt, and because of that, that growth sets in motion the events of the book of Exodus, right? How does Exodus start? And the Hebrews grew in number in Egypt, and the new Pharaoh came in, and he was a jerk, Right? He was scared of just how big the Hebrews were getting. He goes, look, if we don't control them, they're going to get bigger than the Egyptians. And they're going to revolt and take over our kingdom. Let's oppress them now before they get big enough to do anything about it. That's where Moses comes in. That's when he pulls them out. And we hear the let my people go. Right? And he gets them out through the sea. And then he's, he's, he calls them in to be his people. That's when they start to be called the Israelites. All of those things are set in motion because of the faithfulness of Joseph in forgiving and bringing his brothers into the fray and having reconciliation, having that, that, that people, those Hebrew people, continue to grow in numbers. All of that is part of God's sovereign plan. Regardless of how bleak life looks, regardless of how much struggle there is, God is up to something. And Joseph's story if, if, is probably one of the best illustrations of that over the course of the long haul than any other which is why it's such a beautiful way to wrap up this book of the beginning of things. Right? It starts with, let there be light. It ends with, here are my people. When we are faithful, we get to be a part of this amazing story of what God is doing. And this week, as you leave this gathering, I want to encourage you to prayerfully seek forgiveness. Right? Think of who are the people in your life you just, like, man, you haven't talked to you for so long. Maybe you know exactly why. Maybe they've really wronged you. I mean, deeply wronged and wounded you. Right? I want you to start to pray about what it might look like to offer forgiveness. Not, not a fake forgiveness. Not a, not a forgiveness that lets them off the hook and just doesn't name their sin and just, you know, it's okay, don't worry about it, we're good. But a true biblical forgiveness that says, look, you wronged me, but Jesus saved me and Jesus saved you. And so let's be reconciled as the people of God together. Because that's what he calls us to. Right? Just recognize Christ's own forgiveness. Pray for strength. And just choose to forgive. Call him up. Even better, buy him some coffee. Reconcile. Man, it's the greatest witness that we probably have. Is to be a people that forgive in a world that says that's not right. I can't forgive. They won't get theirs. We say, no, 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 that's not how it works. Listen, I serve a God who has forgiven me of much. And so that forgiveness, I, I get the, the beauty and the joy of, of letting go and letting God and, and extending that forgiveness and grace out into the world around me so that everyone sees not how great you are, but how great Jesus is, right? And he will be the righteous judge and you can let go of it trusting that he will take care of whatever issues there are. He will judge them, right? Either by grace under Jesus or by condemnation at the end of their days. It's not our place. It's his. God is sovereign. And he calls us to be a people of radical forgiveness, even when it makes no sense. Right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We offer you thanks because you've forgiven us. 
We're, we're thinking about the ways that people have wronged us, but one of the things we don't often think about is how much we have wronged other people, and more importantly than that, Lord, how much we have wronged you. If you cashed it in, Lord, not one of us would stand. Every one of us would fall in this room one by one in judgment because of what we've done and how we've lived our lives. We're a mess. Your word says that apart from you, we are nothing but filthy rags. And yet, Lord, you offer forgiveness. So we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that when we walk out of this sanctuary, we get to walk as people who are in a new light, who literally you call a new creation because of your work on the cross, Lord. That grace isn't cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. It costs you bitterly. It cost you pain, it caused you suffering, and it cost you death. But you took our punishment, our mess upon yourself so that we might be a people that live redeemed and clean and forgiven. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds. Lord, there are things, there are wrongs that have been done to people in this room that are unfathomable to most of us. And we don't want to diminish those, we don't want to belittle those, we don't want to look the other way on any of that. We ask that you would empower us to offer biblical, genuine, informed forgiveness that calls sin for what it is and then lets it go and lets you be the judge. Lord, this is hard. It is so hard to let go and to trust you. Lord, we recognize that even when we call out sin and forgive, that consequences are natural and a part of that life and they will still face them and those things are all good and necessary. But God, we pray that you would give us a heart of forgiveness so that when people encounter your church, Stowe Presbyterian, they would find a place that is so forgiving and so gracious that the world just doesn't even really know what to do with it. We pray that this town, this community, our families, our extensions, our workplaces would be baffled by the amount of grace that pours out of us because of what you have done in our lives. Be with us. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,